He was known by many names, Jeff Davis, Jack Allen, and Teddy Bedard, a man who was in and out of prison nine times. He has since been labeled by scholars as one of the most destructive serial killers in American history. Today, we discuss a historic serial killer at the turn of the 20th century, Carl Panzram. Let's open the serial killer file. Charles Carl Panzerum was born on June 28, 1891, in East Grand Forks, Minnesota. His parents, John and Matilda Panzerum, were immigrants from East Prussia. At a young age, John abandoned his family, leaving Matilda to work on the farm with only Carl and her four other children. At age eight, Carl was brought before a judge for intoxication. Then, at age 12, he was brought back to court again for robbery. Carl had stolen food and a revolver from a neighbor's home. Shortly thereafter, his parents sent him to the Minnesota State Training School, a brutal juvenile prison. Many speculate that this location is where Carl committed his first murder, although this rumor has yet to be verified. At the state training school, Carl's life would take a turn for the worst. He would be beaten by his fellow attendees, tortured, and even raped by staff at the institution. Eventually, his rage fueled, and he began his path as an arsonist by setting a fire in one of the buildings of the facility. When questioned, Carl lied to the powers of the institution. Regrettably, they believed his words, and he was consequently let free. Carl returned home and attended school once again, but sadly, things never truly changed during his absence. He still hated his teacher and even threatened to kill him right in front of the entire class with a gun. However, before he could pull the trigger, his weapon fell out of his pocket, giving enough time for his teacher to push the gun out of Carl's distance. After his failed attempt at murdering his teacher, Carl abruptly decided to run away. As he rode on the trains through Minnesota during his journey into the unknown, Carl continued to learn more about the pain and suffering of his life. He would be repeatedly raped by strangers. He sought help, but the railroad cops would be of none, as they would merely continue to torture Carl. As time went on, he was arrested for burglary and brought back to another juvenile prison. In 1907, he escaped the prison with another inmate named Jimmy Benson and headed out west. During their travels, the two would rob churches, then set them on fire. In Carl's autobiography, he states the events as an old pastime. In his younger life, Carl blamed much of his hate and misery from the religion being forced upon him back in Minnesota. That same year, Carl was recruited into the United States Army while drinking at a Montana saloon. This, however, would be a very brief period in his life as he was soon convicted of larceny and insubordination, spending two years in Fort Leavenworth's United States disciplinary barracks. 
Upon his release and dishonorable discharge from the army, Carl returned to his life of theft and drifting, ending up back in prison many times. He took on different aliases and names while imprisoned in the various institutions, becoming known for often disobeying and attacking prison guards. This resulted in harsh punishments. The few times Carl did not commit crimes was during his time working as a strike breaker. Additionally, he attempted to gain employment as a ship's steward on a U.S. Army transport vessel, but was discharged due to intoxication. Carl regarded himself as rage personified, hulking in stature, standing at six feet tall and weighing 200 pounds, he owed his strength and size to the years of hard labor. He enjoyed dominating and intimidating, committing acts of arson and vandalism in addition to robberies. On top of this, he became most well known for the rapes of the men he would rob. In Carl's mind, this was a form of control and domination. On June 1st, 1915, Carl successfully robbed a home in Astoria, Oregon, only to be caught attempting to sell some of the items that he had stolen. He was sentenced to seven years imprisonment at Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem. The prison's warden, Harry Minto, ruled the prison with an iron fist. He held the belief that prisoners should receive harsh punishment while confined, which often included beatings and isolation. Carl vowed to defy the warden and never see the full length of his sentence. Within his first year at Oregon State, Carl and his fellow inmate Otto Hooker escaped from the prison. While evading capture, Otto killed Warden Minto, making Carl an accessory to murder. After being recaptured and returned to prison, Carl was disciplined numerous times and spent 61 days in solitary confinement. He made a second escape attempt two years later on September 18, 1917. During this attempt, he engaged in two shootouts with police before his recapture. He shot and injured an officer during this ordeal, resulting in extra years added to his sentences. Carl finally escaped the prison once and for all on May 12, 1918 by sawing through his cell door's bars and catching an eastbound freight train. He shaved off his mustache and took the alias John O'Leary, setting off on his infamous murder spree. In 1920, Carl broke into the home of former United States President William Howard Taft in New Haven, Connecticut. Carl blamed Taft, who had been Secretary of War during Carl's time at Fort Leavenworth, and approved of his sentence for his time in military prison. Stealing a large amount of money and jewelry, he also stole Taft's 45 caliber Colt handgun. Using the stolen money, Carl purchased a yacht called the Akiska while in New York City. Carl kept the boat at the South Street Seaport and began utilizing the boat and location to lure sailors away from bars, inviting them to drink on his boat. He would rob, rape, and murder the men, dumping their bodies near Execution Rock's lighthouse in the Long Island Sound. He would continue this pattern for the next year, killing ten men until running his yacht aground near Atlantic City, New Jersey, and sinking it, 
This allowed for his last two intended victims to flee the wreckage unharmed. After drifting for some time, as well as numerous incidents of fighting and a shootout with police, Carl stowed away on a ship to Africa, landing in Luanda, a city in the then-Portuguese-occupied Angola. He took up working as a foreman on an oil rig for Sinclair Oil. During his stay in Angola, he found a young boy who was around 11 or 12 years old, wandering near the camp at the oil rig. He took the boy to a nearby gravel pit, sodomized him, and bludgeoned him to death remorselessly. Carl also claimed more lives, wherein he hired a canoe of six rowers to take him out to find crocodiles near Libido Bay. He then shot each of the rowers and threw their bodies to the crocodiles. Carl made his way back to America in 1922, plotting to steal another boat to pass off as his now-wrecked yacht. He spent the next year selling drugs and traveling up and down the East Coast, eventually ending up in Salem, Massachusetts on July 18th. On this day, he happened to find 12-year-old George Henry McMahon, who was running an errand for his neighbor that day. Carl lured George away with an offer to give him money which George complied to. However, once he got the boy to an isolated part of the town, he raped the boy numerous times and stuffed his mouth with newspapers before beating him to death, leaving his body under tree branches until he was discovered three days later. Carl eventually succeeded in stealing and repainting another boat to pass off as the Akiska, which he used to troll the Hudson River as a river pirate over the next year. On June 27, 1923, he later tried to sell off his yacht to another man, whom Carl shot twice in the head and claimed the man attempted to rob him during their transaction. Being arrested for this crime, Carl swindled his lawyer into accepting the stolen yacht as payment for getting Carl out on bail. Carl skipped town upon being released, making his way to Connecticut. He claimed to have raped and strangled an unnamed boy in New Haven during this time. Then sometime in August, he murdered 14-year-old Alexander Lazak in Philadelphia before making his way back to New York State. On August 23rd, Carl was subdued and arrested during an attempted burglary of the Larchmont train depot under the alias John O'Leary. While in jail, he told police he was a wanted man in Oregon for shooting a police officer and escaping jail, but police didn't believe him. Carl pled guilty in exchange for a plea deal, which was not granted, and he was sentenced to five years at Clinton Correctional Facility, a notoriously harsh prison in Dannemora. Carl was released from Clinton in 1928. During his time, he was again subjected to abuse by the guards and in turn abused other inmates. He attempted to kill a guard by clubbing him, attempted to firebomb workshops, and on one occasion suffered severe injuries in an escape attempt, for which he did not receive medical attention for an extensive period of time. On July 26th, shortly after his release, he wound up back in Philadelphia, where he killed 14-year-old Alexander Uzaki by strangling him to death. He set off on a rampage, committing numerous burglaries and killing another man in Baltimore before he was finally apprehended in Washington, D.C. 
While held in jail yet again prior to his trial for burglary, Carl voluntarily admitted to anyone who would listen about his previous crimes, including the murders of the young boys. Eventually, guards took notice of these claims and inquired to other jurisdictions. The numerous aliases Carl had used and the sheer amount of crimes that he had committed soon came to light. Carl befriended 26-year-old prison guard Henry Lesser due to his kinder treatment of him. Henry took interest in Carl, providing him the means to tell his story by giving him a pencil and paper. Carl wrote and gave Henry an articulate, extensive memoir of his crimes and his life philosophies, sharing his nihilistic and misanthropic views of the world. During his trial in November, Carl freely admitted to his crimes and acted in his own defense. As a result, he was quickly found guilty and sentenced to 25 years in prison. The prison he was to be serving the time in was ironically Fort Leavenworth. Upon his arrival, he informed the warden, T.B. White, that he would kill the first man to bother him. This led to the prison segregating him from the rest of the prisoners and assigning him to laundry duty so that he could work alone. However, Carl was not always alone. He was supervised by Robert Warnka, the prison laundry foreman, known for being hard and strict. On June 20th, 1929, Carl struck Robert to death with an iron bar while the man sat at his desk. Carl also attempted to attack other inmates who had witnessed the murder. Robert would be Carl Panzerm's final murder victim. Carl went on trial on April 14, 1930. As the trial went on, he would smile and taunt the witnesses who testified at his trial. It would only take 45 minutes for the jury to find him guilty and sentence him to death. In the months leading up to his execution, Carl refused to file any appeals and denied intervention by anti-death penalty and human rights activists. He rejected petitions for his sentence to be commuted, going as far as to write to then-President Herbert Hoover to ensure his sentence would not be changed. On September 22, 1930, Carl was removed from his cell at 5.55 a.m., being led to the gallows by guards. As he stood on the platform, the only witnesses were a handful of guards and reporters. Carl allegedly spat in the executioner's face as they placed the black hood over his head. When asked if he had any last words, Carl simply replied, Yes. Hurry it up, you Hoosier bastard. I could kill ten men while you're fooling around. Carl Panzerm was hanged at 6.03 a.m., dropping from the gallows five and a half feet. He was officially pronounced dead at 6.18 a.m., at the age of 39. His body was not collected by next of kin, therefore he was buried in the Leavenworth Penitentiary Cemetery in row 6, grave 24. His headstone is marked only with his prisoner number, 31614. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. 
over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. It was 1986 in Indonesia. A young woman was in need of advice, spiritual advice to be exact, and there was one man that she felt could provide her with the guidance she required. But this man wasn't a priest, not a typical one. He was what was called a dukun, also known as a shaman, and in this particular case, a sorcerer. It may seem like an absurd idea, but for many in Indonesia, a visit to a shaman could provide tremendous perspective on life, perspective that countless people desired. One shaman in particular was relatively popular, and women had visited him for a plethora of reasons. Some of those reasons were for the shaman to make them more beautiful or bring them greater wealth. He'd cast all sorts of spells on his visitors, one of the most common spells being one that would claim to prevent their husbands from committing adultery. So the woman made her way to the shaman and met with him. His name was Ahmad Suraji, and he proposed taking a walk with her through a field of sugarcane, where his ritual would begin. A ritual that involved Ahmad leading the young woman to a hole in the ground. He told her to stand in the hole, which was just wide enough for her to get into and deep enough to reach up to her waist. From there, he filled the hole so she was unable to move. The woman likely felt nervous. She possibly even asked when she would be able to get out. But sadly, the woman had no idea what was coming next. She wouldn't leave that hole alive. Once she was trapped right where he wanted her, Ahmad lashed out and wrapped a cable around her throat. He strangled the life out of her as she thrashed in futility against him. Eventually, the fight left her, and the shaman cut her life short there in that sugarcane field. He gathered up as much of his victim's saliva as he could that was dripping from her mouth, and he drank it. He proceeded to strip the woman naked and buried her, making sure that her head was facing his house. But this was only the beginning to a string of horrific events as the Indonesian sorcerer thirsted for death and power. There isn't much information publicly known about Ahmad's early life. What is known, however, is that just before Ahmad's first kill, he said that his father, who had died some time before, had appeared to him in a dream. He told his son that he needed to become a mystic healer to gather more power. His father told him to drink the saliva of 70 dead young women. Ahmad awoke from his dream and now had a purpose. Aside from working as a shaman, he was a cattle breeder as well. It was a mundane life of going through the motions, but it would now become anything but. 
Ahmad had been married three times and had still been married to all three wives at the time the murders began. Perhaps even more peculiar, the three of his wives were all sisters. They all supported Ahmad's new path as well, but the eldest of the sisters actively helped Ahmad fulfill his morbid destiny. After hearing his father in the dream, he knew it would take far too long to actively search for dead women to meet his goal. How he would possibly come upon dead women and be able to drink their saliva? It wasn't a practical path whatsoever. So Ahmad decided that he needed to kill the women himself, and then he could become a mystic healer sometime in his lifetime. To avoid the police and witnesses would be difficult. However, he realized that if he lured them to his home one at a time, he could do as he wished and no one would be the wiser. No one was there to witness a thing aside from his wives, who had already supported his twisted and perverse dream. So the man that was supposed to be a healer and helper of sorts turned to murder. Ahmad Suraji knew that he had to still be careful. Many prostitutes visited him to bless them with the ability to attract more men so they could make more money. Many prostitutes weren't connected to their families, and the business they were in was an exceedingly dangerous and isolated one. It was possible that killing prostitutes would be the best way. But he couldn't just kill every single prostitute that came in. That would be reckless. If he was going to get away with killing 70 women for his ritual, he needed to be selective and cautious still. It was a high number to achieve, but it was a firm goal. Ahmad began killing women and no one had any idea. Woman after woman would come to visit him for healing, advice, or help of some kind, and on occasion, he would lead them out into the sugarcane field near his home and lead them to a hole. The woman had no idea that Ahmad had dug their grave, but trusting him as a healer and not a monster, they got into the hole and allowed themselves to be buried up to their waist. Ahmad took his cord and wrapped it around the trusting woman's neck and pinched her blood and airway shut. It wouldn't be long before the woman lost consciousness, probably about 15 seconds, but Ahmad kept the pressure on as people will typically wake up after losing consciousness if air and blood are restored to the brain. But for these women, sadly, they had no chance. Even if his victims woke up, they were still trapped, doomed, and Ahmad would adjust his behavior accordingly to be a more effective killer. He choked the life out of them until their brains shut down, their hearts stopped beating. The victims' necks were reduced in size from the ligature strangulation, and once they were dead, Ahmad collected their saliva to drink, stripped them naked so they would decompose faster, and buried them, aiming their heads so that their faces were looking in the direction of his home, as he believed this would direct more power towards him. Ahmad felt that each new corpse he left was just another conduit of spiritual energy that would transform him into the sorcerer his dream told him to become. A year passed and still no one knew what Ahmad was really doing at his home. 
Another year passed, then another, and so on for eleven years. Eleven years of murder and Ahmad was left unchecked, but also still shy of his goal. That's when, in 1997, he encountered a 21-year-old woman named Shri Kamala Dewey. On April 24th, Shri asked for a ride from a rickshaw puller named Andreas. She wanted to be dropped off at Ahmad's home, and she told Andreas to keep her visit a secret, and she wouldn't be needing him to pick her up. Like so many women before her, Shri disappeared. But unlike so many before her, Shri didn't disappear for very long. Three days later, while walking through the sugarcane field, freshly disturbed dirt caught the attention of a passerby. The man investigated the soil and with some digging discovered the reason for the disturbed dirt. He saw a part of a dead body. The man quickly retreated and soon brought back a few more people who worked towards digging up the body of Sri Kamala Dewey. The police were called and promptly arrived at the scene. While the sugarcane field was near Ahmad's home, it was still quite large and anyone could have used it as a place to bury a body, so Ahmad wasn't an immediate suspect. The rickshaw puller ended up breaking his secrecy and spoke with police, and he told them that he brought Shri to Ahmad Suraji's home by her request. That's when police homed in on Ahmad as a possible suspect. When they arrived at his home, Ahmad unsurprisingly denied having anything to do with Shri's murder, though on closer inspection, police discovered Shri's dress purse, and one of her bracelets, kept by Ahmad as possible souvenirs, if not to further enhance the ritualistic power he drew from her body. Police inevitably arrested Ahmad in April of 1997 and began their interrogation process. Ahmad wasn't forthcoming right away, knowing fully what he'd done and knowing he was still yet to finish what his father told him to do in his dream but there was no hope for him to continue on his murderous path. The authorities had him dead to rights. Slowly, Ahmad began opening up about the women he had killed. It all started with Shri Kamala Dewey, and victim by victim, Ahmad explained how he murdered them and where he buried them. By the end of his interrogations, Ahmad had admitted to the murders of 42 women. He ritualistically murdered each of them in the same way and buried them in the same way as well. Authorities had teams dig up the sugarcane field and, to their horror, they found that Ahmad was good on his confession, unearthing the decomposing bodies of 42 women. Some were so worn away that they were impossible to be identified. So many being prostitutes, they were largely seen as forgettable citizens, as they had little to no ties to their families. Ahmad harbored no sympathy for his victims, but he was very upset over one thing. He was short of his goal. He needed to drink the saliva of 70 dead women, and he dwelled on that heavily, repeating to authorities that 42 wasn't enough. It should have been 70. 70 was the goal. 
Ahmad and his three wives were all arrested, yet one wife in particular, Tumini, was seen as his true accomplice. Ahmad and his wife were sentenced to death, however, Tumini's sentence was changed to life imprisonment. Ahmad had no such luck, and in July of 2008, he walked from his cell to the outside under the hot sun for the final time, taking his last breaths. He was placed up against a wall opposite a group of men with rifles. The men aimed and opened fire on Ahmad Suraji, ending his life with a substantially greater amount of mercy than what he showed his victims. He died there under the hot sun, riddled with bullets in a growing pool of his own blood. To many, especially in outside cultures, spiritual healers or shaman are an absurd concept. But to many, in a place like Indonesia, these people are often regarded highly and with trust. People desperately in need seek them out, sometimes as a last-ditch effort to change their lives, so that they could, at the very least, say that they exhausted all options. From wishing for an escape from disease to trying to make more money to support themselves and their families, Adukun accepted all sorts of people. But Ahmad Suraji used his status to lure in victims for his own personal and demented goals. People who only wanted help. People who had no idea that it would be the biggest mistake they'd ever make. And the last one as well. Sadly, so many of these women will be lost forever. Though their bodies have been recovered, their identities will likely never be known. For these people, and for all their families and loved ones, justice will remain a mystery. Thank you for listening. Be sure to follow the Seriously Strange podcast so you don't miss what we've got in store for you. Watch the shadows and stay alive out there. Thanks to all of you for your support. The Seriously Strange podcast is made possible due in part to contributions made by our listeners like you. So if you would like to keep the Seriously Strange podcast online and accessible, please consider pressing the link that says support the show in the description of any podcast episode. You can then choose your preferred way to donate and send a contribution our way because we can't do this without our listeners support. If you decide to contribute, it's tremendously appreciated, and we thank you so much. We read every single message included with each contribution, so feel free to include your comments or even make a request for a future topic. Thanks for listening. We've got a lot more in store for you. Take care and enjoy your next episode.